Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of the American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about the greatest speech in American history, the Gettysburg Address. And we are joined for the conversation today by um, a great expert on Abraham Lincoln, on the Gettysburg Address itself and its meaning, its importance, and its enduring significance for our country. Uh, for that conversation, we're joined by Professor Jason Stevens. Jason, as many of our listeners know, is a professor of political science at Ashland University. He has been involved with Ashbrook and our programs for students, teachers, and citizens for many years. Uh, Jason mm -hmm. has been a key part of advancing the Ashbrook mission to help uh, students, teachers, and citizens understand our mission, uh, understand America's history, and understand our founding principles. So we are joined by someone who can really help us shed light on a watershed, landmark, monumentally important document in American history and life, the Gettysburg Address. Jason, thanks for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's so good to to be back with you again. Uh, good to see you uh, as uh, as always. The Gettysburg Address. Okay, some of our every one of our listeners have heard of it. I'll assert all of them probably know some of the words of it, hmm. but I suspect that some of our listeners don't know much about the context of the speech. When was it given? Where was it given? Why was it given? Because the only thing I know about the speech and its context is that Lincoln wrote it on the back of an envelope on the train to Gettysburg. Yes, that's the the popular story, isn't it? Um, that because the speech was so short that Lincoln must have just been able to to scribble something off on the the train ride from Washington, DC to to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, that story is unfortunately not true. Uh, this speech, like all of Lincoln's speeches, um, were very carefully prepared ahead of time. Uh, this was a speech that Lincoln had been working on for several weeks. Um, and he even was working on it up to the night before uh, the address was uh, was delivered. Um, so we know that the train story isn't true for that reason. We also know that the train story isn't true because... Uh, the copy of the Gettysburg Address that Lincoln used uh, there at the podium, uh, it was right very, very elegantly written, right? If he had written that on right during a train ride, right, it certainly would have been not not nearly as <laughs> nice looking as it not, turned out. Exactly. Would have been scribbles. So when exactly. was the Gettysburg Address given? Where was it given? Uh, what was the occasion? Yeah, yeah, good question. So. Uh, the speech itself is given November 19th, 1863, which, by the way, 
next month, then we will be celebrating the 160th anniversary of the Gettysburg Address, November 19th, 1863, um, several months after the Battle of Gettysburg, which had taken place earlier that year, uh, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 1863, the, right, the, the bloodiest battle of the war. Uh, and as it turned out, um, maybe it wasn't quite evident at that time, but as it turned out, the turning point in the war, uh, what became known as the high watermark of the Confederacy. Um, after Gettysburg, Lee will never again penetrate that far into uh, into Northern Territory. So you have the, the great Union victory at Gettysburg in July, um, and Lincoln is there in November, as it turns out, to dedicate, help to dedicate a national cemetery, right? So the uh, dead at Gettysburg have now been buried, or at least most of them, and Lincoln is there at a at a cemetery uh, to deliver. Uh, his instructions were to deliver a few appropriate remarks, and uh, Lincoln's speech is part of uh, the ceremony to dedicate this uh, this national cemetery at Gettysburg, part of the, as he tells us in the speech, right, part of that actual battlefield would be the final resting place of these soldiers. So we're fortunate at Ashbrook to have in our archives here at our headquarters, uh, one of the first printed copies of the Gettysburg Address that was printed in book form later in 1863. And one of the things that's really striking to me, Jason, is that the Getty Lincoln's address occupies a tiny sliver, a paragraph of that entire book, which is taken up by another speech. Right. So Lincoln wasn't the main event at this cemetery dedication, which is well, the president of the United States was for not the president the for the president of the United States. He was not the main event. He was not the main speaker. In fact, he had been invited to the event almost as an afterthought. The main speaker was a guy by the name of Edward Everett, who was a Harvard professor, uh, the most renowned orator of, of his day. Uh, Edward Everett had a great reputation for oratory. Lincoln thought that reputation may be a bit overstated. Uh, but Edward Everett, he he came to the uh, to the stage he came up to the podium and he brought like a, a huge pile of papers with him and like you know very dramatically like slams it down on the podium like here's my speech but then edward everett proceeded to deliver his speech from memory he didn't even have to reference the the written speech in front of him and he spoke for two hours wow he spoke for two hours abraham lincoln in contrast uh speaks for just a little over two minutes lincoln's 272 word Gettysburg address, little over two minutes, right? A stark contrast to what the audience had just seen and heard from Edward Everett. In fact, many of the photographers present didn't even have enough time to right change right out the the right their their photography equipment, right? It took a lot longer in those days uh to get a your camera ready. Lincoln was already returning to his chair before the photographers right, had changed out the equipment to take his picture. But funny enough, as it is, Edward Everett wrote a letter to Lincoln after the event where Everett said to Lincoln, uh, I should flatter myself to think that I came as close to expressing the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. And so Edward Everett, he 
he recognized early on the the greatness of Lincoln's little speech. Hmm. 272 words that Everett as an orator, as you say, recognized immediately. This is a profound speech. Hmm. Um, the words themselves, uh, the, it's the, the speech itself, it starts um, in what I regard as kind of an interesting way. Um, it's, uh, I'm sure our, our listeners know some of these words, and I'm looking here at the Ashbrook um, Pocket Constitution and Declaration of Independence, which also happens to have uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. It starts um, this way, Jason. So this is delivered at this National Cemetery at Gettysburg on November 19, 1863. Four and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Tell us about this interesting first sentence and first paragraph of the speech. Yes, you, you mentioned the words, 272 words, three paragraphs. Um, these, are, these are good old short words on behalf of a good cause. Um, and it begins that way, right, from the very first syllable. Um, and there's there's a poetry to it. There's almost a, a poetry to it. In fact, there's, it's an iambic pentameter. There's a rhythm, there's a cadence, just of the delivery of the words that one could right, could hear and feel and sense by when Lincoln delivers this, this short little speech of his. And most of the words are just one or two syllables long. Right. In other words, these are Anglo-Saxon words, Germanic words. These are not your your Latin or Greece, Greek, or your Latin or Greek-based words. In other words, right. This is the language of the common man. Um, everybody understands them. And what Lincoln says here, especially in the in the first paragraph, is is profound. Um, you mentioned that right. Most Americans probably, if they don't have this speech memorized, they at least know right the opening the opening line. Although we we used to, I think we used to make every American schoolchild memorize this speech. We uh, we aren't often in the habit of doing that much anymore. Sadly, I think that's a mistake. But um, the the speech is actually very easy to memorize for the reason that it's that kind of poetry. Um, you hear it in the language itself. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. This first paragraph, Lincoln takes us back to the past. Four score and seven years ago, which would have been a, a way of speaking that, again, would have been very familiar to, to everybody in, in Lincoln's audience. Um, it's 87 years ago, he says, right? A score of years is 24 times 20 is 80 plus so seven, even if it's 87. Familiar, so even if it's familiar, Jason, mm -hmm. why would Lincoln say four score and seven years ago instead of 87 years ago? That's that's a really good question. And when I ask when I ask my students that, right? So why would Lincoln say four score and seven years ago? Why didn't he just say 87 years ago? Or why didn't he just say in 1776, which, right, as it turns out, 87 years before 1863, Lincoln is pointing us back to 1776. My students always say, why didn't he just say that? Right? It's, why did he say four score and seven years ago? Well, it's prettier. It sounds better. And yeah, that's true. 
that's definitely true. But I think Lincoln is up to something else here because this language, the reason why his audience would have known this language well is because this is biblical language. This is language, especially from the Old Testament, uh, from the, it's the language of the patriarchs. It's also the language of the psalmist. There is a particular passage in the Psalms, which speaks of the, the scores of years that are allotted in the average lifetime of man. Um, from Psalm 90, verse 10, um, the, the psalmist says, the days of our years are threescore year and 10, and if by means of strength they are fourscore years, we are soon cut off and we fly away. This is the allotted lifetime of, of man, according to, to the Bible, which we know Lincoln was familiar with. He cites the passage in other letters, uh, and we know Lincoln's audience would have been very, very familiar with with that passage, the allotted lifetime of man. And so Lincoln, in using that biblical language, is pointing out that the nation is older than the allotted lifetime of man. Human beings have expiration dates. Do nations have expiration dates? Will the nation follow the dead to the grave, both the dead who struggled here and the founding fathers who their generation, which is now dead and gone, their generation, which has been cut off and, and flown away. These are questions that Lincoln gets us thinking about because he says four score and seven years ago. These are questions we would not confront or wouldn't even fathom if he had said anything else, if he had said in 1776 or 87 years ago. The way he says it raises particular questions that Lincoln wants us to take seriously. Another question that comes to my mind when I'm looking at this first sentence is, he says it's a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Uh, what's new hmm. about the nation, according to Lincoln, that the fathers brought forth? Yeah, that's another really, really good question. So Lincoln points us back to the birthday of the nation, essentially, in, in 1776, where our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation that was conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. What was new about that nation was that for the first time in the history of the world, in the first time in, in human history, you have a, a nation that was conceived in liberty and dedicated to what Thomas Jefferson had called the self-evident truth that all men are created equal, but what Lincoln here at Gettysburg calls a proposition, the proposition that all men are created equal. So let me ask you about that word. That's interesting. So Lincoln is saying America began in 1776. And I guess from the quote, all men are created equal, which is, I think, taken directly from the Declaration of Independence, Lincoln would say America started on July 4th, 1776. It was a nation conceived in liberty, but as you said, he says, dedicated to the proposition, not the self-evident truth. He doesn't use Thomas Jefferson's words exactly, even though he quotes Jefferson. Why does Lincoln call it a proposition and not just use Jefferson's words, self-evident truth, that all men are created equal? Yeah, again, I think Lincoln is up to something here. That is, he's trying to teach us something. In this opening sentence of the Gettysburg Address, we've already seen him use biblical language four score and seven years ago, but he also uses Declaration of Independence-inspired language, because even if you didn't know that a score of years 
was 20 and you could do the math to figure out he's talking about 1776, you would know for certain that he was talking about 1776 and no other year when you see that language pulled directly from the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. But you're right, Jeff, Lincoln does make a slight change. Whereas Jefferson in 1776 had called that principle of equality a self-evident truth, Lincoln here, four score and seven years later, in 1863, calls it a proposition. Why would Lincoln make that change? First of all, I think he's conscious that he's right making the change. I don't think Lincoln is a, a, a lazy writer. We've already established that he is not. Um, he's not a bad historian, right? He has the documents, right? In a very right Ashbrooky way, Lincoln cares what the original documents say. He's not going to, right, intentionally get something wrong, um, or right neglect the past. Lincoln again, I think, is trying to teach us something by using that word proposition. So, what's he trying to teach us? Um, Jefferson had started out by saying it's a self-evident truth that all men are created equal. A self-evident truth is something we might say is, is always true for all men and all times and all places. It's something that is obvious to you once you've been enlightened to it. And we started out, we Americans started out as one people, to borrow another phrase from the Declaration of Independence, we started out as one people who hold to certain self-evident truths, including the truth that all men are created equal. That's how we started our political existence. That's how we began as one people. Lincoln here, now four score and seven years later, says proposition. What's a proposition? How is it different from a self-evident truth? A proposition as opposed to a self-evident truth may or may not be true. A proposition may be accepted or it may be rejected, right? The root word of proposition is propose or, or proposal. It's something that's that's put forward. I think Lincoln makes that change to acknowledge the changing attitude of the nation towards its central political moral premise that you find in the Declaration of Independence. That is, we had started out in 1776 as one people who say, yeah, we believe this. We hold this to be true. Now in 1863, a significant portion of that population in the South, which now claims to no longer be part of that nation, but also in the North, because right there are there, it's not alone in the South where you see objections to the principles of the Declaration of Independence, but there's now a serious question in the American mind, do we still hold these truths to be self-evident? There are many who are asserting, many, many people who are asserting at the time in 1863, that all men are not created equal, that it's a self-evident lie there in the Declaration. So I think Lincoln, long story short, I think Lincoln makes that change to acknowledge the change that has taken place in the American mind towards its central moral principle. So the past, the first paragraph is about 1776, mm -hmm. the nation the founders brought forth, conceived in liberty, as you said, and dedicated to equality, which we used to believe in and all understand and know, and now we're not so sure. But the second paragraph then begins and reads this way. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. 
we have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. What's the second paragraph about? So the first paragraph we said had been about the past, four score and seven years ago. Now in the second paragraph, Lincoln brings us into the present. The first word of that second paragraph, now. Now we are engaged in a great civil war. Uh, and spoiler alert, the third paragraph is going to point us towards the future. First paragraph, past, second paragraph, present, third paragraph, the future, which we'll, we'll get to. Um, but here in the second paragraph where he's focused on the present, uh, he says, he says quite a lot, right? He explains why they are there. Um, they are there, he says, uh, to dedicate a portion of that battlefield as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. When I when I read this speech with um, with students, a lot of times when when uh, students are really right ordinary citizens who may not be used to reading out loud, even though this is a speech, right? It's an address. It's meant to be read out loud. When you read out loud, you see new and interesting things that maybe you wouldn't have discovered if you were just reading it silently to yourself. So when a student reads this part of the Gettysburg Address out loud, a lot of times they they tend to stumble over that sentence where yeah, Lincoln that, talks that about that is a strange that, that. combination that should be it doesn't sound right to me to be honest with you it doesn't sound like the poetry that we were talking about earlier in fact it it I would go so far as to say it almost sounds a bit ugly right that that nation it's certainly might a live. little clunky so it why is. would Lincoln say that that nation might live as opposed to like that this nation might live or that the nation might live because those that seems to roll off the tongue a little bit better it certainly sounds better. Yeah. And a lot of times students, when they read this out loud, they will insert the word this or the in place of the one that, and they, they won't even notice because they'll, they're just sort of expecting to, to see something other than what they actually see. But I think in Lincoln in in using those double that's, he's trying to get us to stumble. He actually wants us to stumble, stop, pick ourselves up and say, wait, what am I supposed to see here? What's going on here? Because I think Lincoln wants us to stumble because he wants to teach us something. Just like earlier in the first paragraph, the second paragraph also Lincoln is trying to reveal something to us. And I, I think it's here in the central paragraph that he's trying to reveal to us how he, Lincoln, how he thinks of the Civil War, what he thinks of the Civil War itself. What was the purpose of the war? What was the war all about? Um, in our textbooks, we will often find, uh, and it's our textbooks aren't wrong to say this, but our textbooks will often say Lincoln thought the Civil War was a civil war to preserve the Union or to to end slavery. And again, those observations aren't necessarily wrong, but we notice here at Gettysburg, Lincoln never uses the word Union. He never uses, in, in fact, he never uses the word slave or slavery. Uh, instead of union, which right, he used a lot, he used that word 20 some odd times in his first inaugural, by contrast, here he never uses it. And instead he uses the word nation, which I think he uses five times. But if we're going to understand how Lincoln thinks about the war, I think we need to understand his, his words and what he's saying here in the second paragraph, because 
to say the right the war is a war to preserve the union or end slavery again that's not necessarily wrong but it's incomplete if you don't understand why Lincoln thought the union was worthy of the saving for instance but here I think we get a little more insight into that and it comes through those double that's yeah, because when I read that that nation, I stumble on it, as you say, mm -hmm. when I pick myself up, dust myself off, I say, wait, which nation? That that nation, which nation? Because he doesn't say that this nation. If he had said this nation, I would have thought, oh, he's talking about America in 1863. This nation, the one that he's in right now with the folks that he's talking to in November of 1863. But he says that that nation. So which nation is he talking about? Yeah, great point. If he had said this nation or the nation, you would think he would be talking about the one right in the present, right? And what is the condition of this nation or the nation in the present? It's falling apart, right? Half, right? Many of the states have, have said they're no longer part of, of the nation. It's falling apart around our ears. As he says, right now we're engaged in a great civil war. But he doesn't say this or the, he says that, that, that nation might live. I think that nation is not the one in the present, but the one in the past. That nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. That the dead soldiers who we honor here, they died not for this nation, they died for that nation, that that nation might live, the one that was conceived in liberty fourscore and seven years ago by our fathers and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. It's the soldiers who died for that nation that we're honoring, which then again raises a really interesting question that I'll, I'll pose to, to my students and I'll, I'll say to them, well, who's buried in this cemetery that Lincoln is, is dedicating? And my imagination would be, I mean, I've been to Gettysburg, so I know the answer to this, but if I hadn't been there, my response would probably be, well, everybody who was killed at the battle. And that, I think, is a, is a good gut reaction to have, to think, well, they're all Americans. They're, aren't they all buried there? Didn't they all die and struggle there at the battlefield, both North and South, Union and Confederate? But I tell my students, you know what, there's an answer to that question, who's buried at that cemetery? But I tell them, look, don't ask Siri, don't ask Alexa, don't ask Mr. Google, ask Mr. Lincoln. And when you ask Mr. Lincoln and you read what he says here, we have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. Who died that that nation might live? that the nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, who died for that nation? It certainly was not the Confederacy, right? As, right, as we see in the Articles of Secession, as we see in Alexander Stevens's cornerstone speech, the vice president of the Confederacy, again and again, we're told the Confederacy is not based on the principle that all men are created equal. In fact, it's based on its opposite, that all men are created unequal and that slavery is right. So who died for that nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal? Who's buried in that cemetery? We just find out 
from Mr. Lincoln through the double vats, only Union soldiers. In fact, they had accidentally buried some Confederates there early on, and when they realized their mistake, they actually had those bodies exhumed and moved to a Confederate cemetery because only those who gave their lives that that nation might live could be buried in that cemetery. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. I'm Dr. John Moser, professor of history at Ashland University and chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. The MAG program is for teachers who want to master their craft by building content knowledge from original documents, from the words of those who lived and shaped our history, and not from textbooks or lectures. Our program is built around the discussion of original sources, and our faculty, both from both Ashland University and from across the country, is committed to this approach. We believe that the best way to get to know our past is to have a conversation with those who were there. James Madison, Frederick Douglass, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Theodore Roosevelt, and so many more. We offer two programs for working teachers and a broad selection of core and elective courses. You can learn more at tah.org slash programs. So we have the first paragraph, the past, the nation of 1776. The second paragraph, the present, the, the Civil War is about whether the nation of 1776 will actually endure. The third paragraph, the future, mm -hmm. I'll read it. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it cannot forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. What's this third paragraph saying about the future of America going forward from 1863? Yeah. Yeah, great question. Um, I think we need to look at the topics of the various paragraphs. The first paragraph that was about the past, uh, it was about that new nation that had been conceived in liberty and dedicated to equality. There was conception. The founders had been the conceivers. Uh, of this new nation. That happened in 1776. Second paragraph, now in the present, that nation that had originally been conceived by the fathers now is going through some birthing pangs, if you will, right? There's blood, there's toil, there's struggle. Through the Civil War, that nation 
is struggling to be born. And then in the third paragraph, you have sometime right in the future, a new birth of freedom where that nation that had originally been conceived by the fathers will now finally be be brought forth or that the nation itself will now fully live up to its own principles, principles of liberty and equality uh, in ways that hadn't been possible before. And I think Lincoln here very clearly has in mind, right, the plight of the slave, right? That through the Civil War, there will be a new birth of freedom for the American slave, that the nation will now come to be more fully in line with its own principles, as declared four score and seven years ago in the Declaration of Independence. And we and uh, November 19th, 1863, would have been after him issuing the Emancipation Proclam Proclamation in January of 1863, right? Yes, yes, so that, absolutely. So the, the movement to, to freeing slaves, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation doesn't free all slaves everywhere in America, just under mili military-occupied uh, areas um, uh, who in states that have seceded, right? It frees mm -hmm. those slaves. But so not everyone is free. Is the 13th Amendment, the amendment that abolishes slavery in Lincoln's mind here in the Gettysburg Address? Yes, I think so. I think we're definitely the nation is is moving in that direction, right? Through the Civil War, the nation that emerges right after the war is finally over will be one that is now more in conformity with its original principles. Although Right. We could also say that sort of the history of America has always been that struggle to live up to our own principles, where the struggle will not begin or end at, at Gettysburg or even Appomattox, but will continue right in American history up into the 20th century with the civil rights movement as well will be right, arguably part of that that new birth of freedom. But curiously enough, what I what but I would what I would emphasize is that Lincoln here is not talking about a birth of new freedoms. Right. He's not creating something new or he's not trying to go beyond the founding or to improve upon the founding. Lincoln's inspiration is to go back to the founding. Right. Not to improve upon their work, but to bring their work to a more perfect uh, fruition, to bring a new birth of freedom. This is a new birth, but based in these very old and true principles. And when when I look then at what work needs to be done in order to do that, in order to have that new birth of freedom. So here's what Lincoln says, the great task remaining before us. And he gives what to my mind is very interesting. He gives a series of that's, which, by the just way, like the Declaration of Independence, right? Just like the Declaration of Independence, right, which is a series of that's in the second paragraph. The first that that from these honored dead. We take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. What does Lincoln want there for his audience and those who hear and read his speech? Yeah, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation, notice now in the future, it's this nation. Not that nation, it's this nation, the one from the present, this nation, under God, 
shall have a new birth of freedom. And by the way, we talked at the beginning about the speech that Lincoln had when he went up on the podium to deliver these remarks. By the way, he did not have this speech memorized. He, like Edward Everett, had his two-hour speech memorized. Lincoln was actually, we know he was actually reading from the speech. And we also know that the speech that he had with him did not have those two little words in it, under God. Lincoln, we think, sort of just added that two little word phrase, right, spontaneously in the moment. So really, Lincoln was still working on the speech up to, and even including while he's delivering the thing, he says that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. So both through the efforts of those who have struggled here, those who continue to fight the good cause, and under the providence of divine God, Right through those means, this nation shall become more like that nation, or to put it another way, better way, as Lincoln puts it, that this nation shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And that then the people will include all the people. Yes, yes. And... It will be an example, not just for America and Americans, but for, right, the last word of the speech is earth. There's the importance that America holds in her experiment of freedom, right, in demonstrating to the rest of mankind, to the rest of, right, the world, that human beings not only should govern themselves, but they can govern themselves without tearing themselves asunder. And Lincoln really believed, if this if these last words from this speech, that if self-government fails in America, there's nowhere else to go, that it really could fail forever across the world. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, that's that's something I think that Ronald Reagan learned from from Lincoln, right? Because that was something we heard Reagan say a lot in the in the 20th century about what America means to the world. Lincoln was always the greatest student of America, and I think even to this day, a fantastic teachers of Americans and what it what it means to be an American. And I know no better um, explanation for Lincoln's philosophy and those lessons, his teachings and those lessons than right this good little short speech at Gettysburg. What's the legacy of the Gettysburg Address? Um, because it's a short speech. It barely gets reported, as you said. There's no picture of Lincoln giving the speech. Um, he even says the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. <laughs> it turns out the world has remembered it. We have remembered it as Americans. But what is its importance and its legacy for us? Yeah, yeah. When Lincoln says the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did there, I'm, I'm not, I'm not convinced Lincoln is speaking there 100% honestly, let's say. I think Lincoln knew that this speech would be remembered. I think Lincoln, like, like Churchill knew, like Pericles knew, that words are absolutely necessary to give meaning and significance to actions. We always hear actions speak louder than words, right? but it's words that are necessary to give meaning and significance to action. And in fact, Lincoln's memorial there in Washington, D.C., Lincoln is surrounded by words, by his own words, the Gettysburg Address and, and the Second Inaugural. In fact, 
American monuments, right, take that as, as a theme. And you go through Washington, D.C., the Thomas Jefferson Memorial, same thing. Jefferson surrounded by his own words. Martin Luther King Jr., surrounded by his own words. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, surrounded by his own words. Americans are obsessed with words, it seems, because it's it's in our moral and philosophical DNA. That is to say, America is the the first nation in the history of the world founded upon words. Right? These words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And these words, spoken four score and seven years later, uh, that our founding fathers brought forth a new nation conceived in liberty and decayed proposition that men are created equal. Jeff, you ask about the legacy of the Gettysburg Address. The legacy of the Gettysburg Address speaks to um, the importance of words, especially good old short words on behalf of a good cause. But also the Gettysburg Address speaks to the meaning of America, I think. If somebody wants to really understand what is America, what is America about, and why is she worth preserving, I don't think one can understand that without going to the Gettysburg Address. Um, right For us Americans today, if we want to understand what makes Americans one people, as the Declaration of Independence tells us, Abraham Lincoln is the greatest teacher when it comes to that, when it comes to teaching us about ourselves, about our nation, and why it is worthy of our esteem and confidence. Uh, the Gettysburg Address, as you said, Jason, is and certainly should be required reading for all Americans, students, teachers, citizens. Uh, thank you so much for taking us on a journey into this remarkable speech, this remarkable American poem, this philosophical reflection on the meaning of the Civil War and of America. Jason Stevens, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today on The American Idea. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, Remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.